0: If you follow the news, you might be wondering, what's going on with banks? It kicked off with rumors that Silicon Valley Bank was on the verge of going under. Clients rushed to pull their money out. It turned out the bank had made risky investments and didn't have the cash on hand when its customers started withdrawing. So the bank collapsed. Silicon Valley Bank served a crucial population tech companies, startup founders, and venture capitalists. A huge chunk of the tech industry was banked by SVB. And if that pool of money went down with the bank, the U.S. economy could very well go down with it. That left the U.S. government with no choice but to rescue Silicon Valley Bank's clients, making sure they got their money back. Washington wound up very suddenly, and without really planning to, bankrolling the tech industry. But what if we could do it on purpose? What if the federal government didn't just swoop in when there was a disaster, but instead proactively funded this critical economic sector? What if, when you wanted to get your startup going, there was a radically different option for funding? A public option. I'm Scott Nover, the host of The Quartz Obsession, where we're taking a closer look at the technologies and innovations that might someday change our lives. Today, a public tech bank in the United States. Nate, who are you and what do you do at Quartz?
1: I'm Nate DiCamello and I'm an economics reporter with Quartz, uh, mainly focused on the labor market, but also macroeconomic trends and issues in the U.S. and internationally.
0: Anything related to money you cover, right? My beat tends to just go everywhere. So like, yes. So Nate, this season of the Quartz Obsession has been about innovation, and one of the strange things that's happened while we've been making it is that we've been watching in real time a shift in attitudes about how the future of tech is funded. And by that, I mean specifically, we watched Silicon Valley Bank collapse and take some other institutions with it. Can you tell us about the role that Silicon Valley Bank played in the tech ecosystem? Was it more than just a place to get cash out of the ATM?
1: Silicon Valley Bank offered not just like your typical kind of like banking and financing services. It's primary kind of like pitch to these investors to startups was that it had the kind of like relationships with venture capitalists that other banks did not. It not only had its own venture arm, but it could also find venture capitalists partners to help finance your next uh, series. In addition to that, it also had this kind of like personal banking for the like entrepreneurs that were in these startups, you know, come and bank with us and get your seed money through us, but also inviting them to kind of get a mortgage uh, out of Silicon Valley Bank. So it's a very deposit-hungry bank that wanted to kind of bank the entire kind of like financial lives of entrepreneurs and the startups that they created. What does that mean, deposit-hungry? It means that it needs more deposits so it can make money off of those deposits when it puts them into treasuries. When you want to make a lot of money off of treasuries, you need more money to put into treasuries. This is why you'll see, you know, a lot of digital banks like SoFi, for instance, offer really high like saving account yield because they like want to rake in more deposits as they're able to earn more yield on their treasuries. Without a separate, more robust lending business, that's kind of what you're left with. You need to try to get as many deposits in the bank as possible. Whereas the big six banks in America that hold like 85% of deposits aren't as deposit hungry because they're already flush with deposits and they also already have a dynamic loan book. So what's wrong with that? The main criticism that I think financiers had of Silicon Valley Bank is that they were investing in 10-year treasuries and the people that they were serving had like much shorter kind of like fundraising timelines. So they would fundraise every 18 to 24 months. And the criticism is that they should have been investing in like two-year treasuries instead
0: of 10 years. Let's zoom out a little bit. Treasuries are bonds issued by the Treasury Department, right? Why is it a problem that Silicon Valley Bank was buying them? They are essentially
1: something that that you buy now and you get paid out later. And there's yield on them. Not too different from
0: if your grandma or grandpa bought you like savings bonds as a kid. Right. So the proposition is the government is fundraising in some way. They're selling bonds and you, the consumer, are buying into it because you're promised uh, more money later. Right. Yes. And so that's kind of what Silicon Valley Bank was buying into. They were locking up their money with the assurance that down the road they would get much more money back. Right. It was a pretty safe government bond. The problem was that the pace that they needed liquidity or money on hand was a much shorter term than what they had just bought into from the government. Right. So there's a discrepancy between what this bank was putting its money in, which was a long term financial product, and the pace at which the tech industry was actually functioning, which is very rapid, and more so when interest rates were rising and the tech sector was suffering. Is that right? Yeah.
1: But the thing is that you want to have a little bit more of a diversified business than just that. They didn't really have this kind of like loan book that could also really
0: rise in value as interest rates rose when you say the Silicon Valley had a diversity problem, you're talking about their investments were not very diverse. They were mostly investing in 10-year treasuries. And then they also had a diversity problem with their clientele. That all of their customers were basically exposed to rising interest rates, which hit the tech industry hard.
1: Yes. You know, you can be a bank that's just focused on one industry. But if you're a bank that is like as deposit hungry as Silicon Valley Bank was, it can be quite difficult in a high interest rate environment.
0: So one thing I'm thinking about is you're talking about the relationships of Silicon Valley Bank and the kind of personal touch that they had with the tech industry. And I was wondering kind of how much is that by nature of being a regional or local bank and. How much of that was just kind of a weird one-off situation because they were so close to this weird unicorn for lack of a better word uh, industry? I mean, it's a bit both. Regional banks have
1: proven through many studies are better at delivering personalized finance to their customers than big banks are. Most notably, in the pandemic, we had the Paycheck Protection Program, and there was a lot of fraud uh, involved in that program, but regional and community banks did a lot better in terms of getting those loans to the people that needed it. But there's also this thing within banking now that if you are going to try to breakthrough in the U.S. banking system where you have these like six massive banks and you're not one of the massive legacy banks. If you're a community bank, going niche is a pretty good way of trying to like develop those relationships. And it just so happened that, you know, again, the region of Silicon Valley has so many tech companies that I was able to target. And so it also made sense for it to be a regional bank.
0: Right. Regional banks are closer to the consumer. They're closer to the companies that they're banking. They kind of get it a little bit better than the big national banks, right? Absolutely. They can form kinds
1: of relationships that you could, when you're a tech entrepreneur, you could call up someone at Silicon Valley Bank that would be able to work with you. You didn't have to sit listening to the
0: automated telephone system that we all hate when we try to get through to our bank. I like the ones that call you back. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm going to call you back in three hours so you're not just listening to elevator music. Yes. So- There seems to be a tension at the heart of banking between banks' ambitions to finance their customers' projects and get returns and their commitments to protecting customer deposits. You've got to make money with money, but you also have to make sure the money is there when people need it. Why was walking that tightrope harder for Silicon Valley Bank than other institutions? The fundamentals of Silicon
1: Valley Bank, like if they actually raised money when their stock price was up instead of waiting a day to raise money. Basically on Wednesday they were like, we lost two billion in bond sales. And then they were like, but we're gonna, we're gonna fundraise to cover that. But they waited till Thursday to fundraise. So in part it was just like terrible communication on behalf of bank and their deposit base was just a bunch of super flighty customers that that were ready to run as the
0: first sign of trouble. Right. And so what we have is a classic bank run and everyone wants to get their money out. And the bank collapses. The bank fails. The government lets the bank fail. Right Now, there is a hard limit in banking regulation. The FDIC, the main deposit insurance regulator in the United States, only insures $250,000 of customer deposits in a given bank.
1: Where does that
0: even come from?
1: So... The FDIC, it's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation for the United States. And it was created in the New Deal. And it came in response to a rash of bank runs. And the US used to be very sensitive to bank runs in the first half of the 20th century. And since the FDIC's insurance, the US has never experienced a series of bank runs like it did in the beginning of the 20th century.
0: How does the FDIC prevent that?
1: First, the FDIC has a deposit insurance fund, which holds 1.35% of all insured deposits. That deposit fund, it it keeps us stocked through fees that it imposes primarily on large banks. But like obviously, that 1.35% of insured deposits, that fund isn't going to be able to cover like a JPMorgan Chase if it like suddenly goes under. So it also has the ability to borrow, to be able to also fulfill its deposit insurance requirement. Uh, Ever since the FDIC is created, we no longer have like narratives of like rampant bank runs. Like Silicon Valley Bank is very subdued, very, very small compared to the bank panics that we had in the first half of the 20th century. Prior to the FDIC, often our economic crashes and our narratives around the economic crashes had to do with like what was going on with the rich class of Americans. like What were the bankers doing? What were their financiers doing and whatnot? And that was a very common reason for us to enter
0: into recessions. So the FDIC has worked in a sense. like It has very much staved off the worst impulses of Word of mouth panics that could afflict the entire banking system and really put Americans' money at risk, right? Yeah. Like, I know for sure, unless I become a
1: millionaire by a stroke of luck tomorrow, that my checking account will always be insured by the
0: FDIC. Well, then I guess we won't give you that raise, Nate. But, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not to say that banks haven't failed, but the system as a whole has remained fairly solid. Yeah, I mean, like, in
1: terms of the response to the banking system, even though, like, you might see some hyperbolic kind of, like, headlines from crypto bros writing about, you know, the end of the banking system. This has showed, like, some of the cracks in bank regulation because we loosened some of the requirements on banks that are $50 and above in 2018. But it's also showed the resilience of just our overall ability to backstop the financial system. So
0: something that is absolutely fascinating is because so many of Silicon Valley Bank's customers had more than $250,000 in the bank, any amount of money over that was not protected by the U.S. government. Is that right? Yeah. And it's right for a lot of other banks that serve wealthy customers.
1: Like this is a common issue for smaller banks that try to carve out their niche by serving super wealthy customers. But it's like very time consuming if you're a bank in that position to try to get the deposit insurance. You can try to go through companies that will Offer deposit insurance on your accounts entirely for a fee. They'll spread them out across a bunch of different banks. And that's what those companies kind of act as middlemen. But again, your bank that wants to accept these deposits because you want to make money off them, you don't want to have other banks making money off them, and you don't want to pay for the extra deposit insurance. So it's just like right now, as we're set up, like for the really kind of wealthy accounts, like they're just isn't an incentive to try to like uh, protect those deposits.
0: So the government came in and it said, we're not going to do a full-on bailout of the bank itself. We're going to let Silicon Valley Bank fail. We're going to get rid of its executives. The bank itself is not going to exist in the same form as it once was. But we are going to insure all of these uninsured depositors at the bank and make sure that essentially... The tech industry is bailed out yeah why do you think they came to that conclusion
1: i think that the u.s banking regulators have a lot of trauma from the 2008 crisis and want to look out for cracks in the financial system that they might not be aware of and i mean this was one of those blind spots and so part of this was a failure in bank supervision but The other part of this is that now there's this discussion within the FDIC, kind of looking at what would it look like for the FDIC to insure all deposits. So economists have brought up the fact that that poses some moral hazard risks and that it could encourage banks, even though like SVB itself and its executives do not exist in any way, shape or form the same format as they did before. It still could encourage kind of like risky bank models, just knowing that like, oh, well, now all our
0: deposits are good, like we can do whatever we want. Right. Silicon Valley Bank could probably reform and, you know, get its customer base back and try some other weird tactic, right?
1: Yeah. And there's also just like this question of what kind of society do we want to live in too? Like we go through socializing all these risks, but then we privatize all the returns from taking those risks. And so like, it's like, who do we want to actually like, benefit from taking the risk. And in a time where we have historic inequality, it's reasonable that people are getting upset and calling this a bailout because you've set up a system in which the risk takers are getting a bunch of rewards, but the actual like full pain of it is not felt by them.
0: That is such a great point, Nate. We are, as you say, socializing the risks of banks and privatizing the returns. I'm pretty sure that's a quote from something. From what I understand, the economist Joseph Stiglitz popularized it, but it had been around before that. Right, right, right. So it seems like for a lot of folks, the takeaway from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank was that they screwed up. They should have been more diversified in their customer base and in their investments. But you have a different take. That tech definitely needs a personalized approach to banking that Silicon Valley Bank had but a way more powerful backer. So what's your hot take? So my hot take is that we might consider
1: what public banking options there might be for tech. Tech sector in the United States could benefit from a public banking option that would offer cheaper financing and also direct loans to technologies that could be really transformative for the U.S. Stuff that's more than just mobile apps.
0: What does a public option look like for tech
1: banking? It looks like something that can outcompete private banks because it's tied to the Federal Reserve and it's able to get the kind of cheap financing from the Federal Reserve that big banks can. It looks like a bank that extends loans for projects that really matter for the country's needs. You want a new power grid, you want geothermal, you want to get nuclear fusion done you want to be able to do the climate transformation going into this green economy you want all those things and i mean silicon valley isn't really like producing that for us it's like having us let like obsess over new features on apps which is like all well and fine, but like what we want is a future you and me, our kids, our friends' kids can have a better quality of life. I don't want a world in which like we only build things based on 10 year time horizons. What's the 10 year mark? Because that's what most venture funds in the US, that's how long they invest for before they exit. So they invest in a company and then
0: like they wait for the company to IPO or something or be sold. Would a public tech bank be less risky than what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank? 100%. Why do we want something that's less risky? I mean, that's a good question. Like we want something less
1: risky because the way banking is set up now is like banks are always going to be looking for the largest returns in the short amount of time, but also It's too easy to to trick a bank into financing a ton of bubbles right now.
0: Is there a bigger risk if the U.S. government is financing a bunch of bubbly tech companies? Well, so whatever U.S. bank gets chartered, we get to, we, the people get to
1: say what it finances, how it works. The notoriously volatile tech sector is volatile because it's been so focused on short term earnings. Those venture capitalists have a need to raise funds like every 18 to 24 months. And so that phenomenon can kind of be broken by a public tech bank. Public tech bank can, you know, offer extend loans to someone that is starting a new social media company, for sure. But they're also going to have a ton of loans that are focused on uh, real tech infrastructure that's going to push us towards the future. Why is that? Previously, like most of our like tech investment that's come from the, the government has been through things like DARPA, which is a program from the Defense Department where the military had certain goals that they wanted to reach, and so out of that came the invention of silicon itself, that Silicon Valley is named after, the internet, GPS, a bunch of other things, and the hope here with like something like a public tech bank would be that we wouldn't just like wait for something to become a
0: priority of the U.S. military before we pursued it. I thought Al Gore invented <laughs> internet. <no>? <laughs> <laughs> right. So the U.S. government has a long history of funding and financing innovation. They've just done it through military spending and other ways, right? So this isn't totally new, but it's a new way of doing business.
1: Yeah, the U.S. has had this really strong emphasis on national security. So it will invest in anything related to national security and the private sector. We'll build off of that. Obviously, things like the Internet increase our productivity and GDP by like multiples. But that in-between space when we don't need something because we're trying to compete with other countries based on national
0: security is what we need to be thinking about. And so let's back up. What are public banks and what's our history with them in the U.S.? There was public
1: consumer banking through the U.S. Post Office from 1911 to like 1966.
0: What does the post office have to do with banking?
1: The postal banking system came out of like the 1907 bank panic. And at the time, the Republican Party supported the postal banking system while Democrats wanted deposit insurance. Democrats got the deposit insurance later, but that postal banking system for a number of decades was able to provide free personalized banking services for people across the country
0: in places where bank branches could not reach. That's fascinating. How do other countries invest in technology? Do they have public banks for that?
1: Yeah, you'll see this. Sometimes a country might have a tech portion of their like development bank focused on investing in like bridges and tunnels, but then also technology. And then you might see some countries like Ireland did this recently, um, using their like kind of sovereign wealth fund to do a similar kind of financing. It's just a very smart move for the government to direct financing more intentionally. And another form of a public bank is an export-import bank. Right now, the U.S. has uh, an export-import bank that helps small businesses to be able to get goods from one part of the world to another using
0: insurance, loans, loan guarantees. Right. Coming up, we'll talk about what a tech bank could do for the future of the planet and why that's going to piss off every venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. But first, a quick break. We're back with Quartz's Nate DiCamillo. And Nate, I'm wondering why we don't have that many public banks in the United States. I think it's the
1: laissez-faire kind of view of economics that's a little ingrained in American culture. And so even though the creation of public banks doesn't mean we're eradicating private banks, we're fearful of crowding out private
0: investors. Your proposal would both emphasize investment in technology while also reducing risk. Is that the two-prong goal here? That is the two prongs, yeah. Yeah. And why should the United States invest in technology? If
1: we don't invest in tech, we'll fall behind other countries. But another important point is that whatever bank we create wouldn't remove the need to also uh, invest in these things via Congress and through deficit spending and through just like straight up the government creating new programs. But what it would do is like when we have like split Congress like we do now, it would mean financing for those sectors wouldn't
0: stop. And who would make decisions about what the priorities are for this bank to uh, invest in? Well, so that's always an important point to think about
1: when you're creating a new public entity. So you want to make sure that that bank isn't just going to switch based on whatever president is in office. You're going to want to make sure that they have like executives that, sure, are going to get like replaced regularly, like Senate confirmed or confirmed by the state legislature. Mm-hmm. But you also don't
0: want them make them subject to every whim of a politician. Right. You want some sort of checks and balances to keep the entity stable. Yes. I think one of the lessons from Silicon Valley Bank that I don't want to lose is that it's important not to enable risky behavior or take on too much risk. And I wonder how a public bank would be able to backstop tech without enabling the worst tendencies and whims of the tech sector
1: totally i think that when it comes to not creating what economists like to call a moral hazard and where you create like a system where there are no consequences and so it you know encourages bad behavior for private actors or for startups, businesses or, or individuals, I think that lies in how the bank is chartered and what its underwriting standards are going to be. Will it have a mandate to only service sectors that aren't competing with private banks? And then what kind of leverage
0: uh, is it allowed then to take on? Can this bank increase access to financing and tech and bring more people into the fold in a way that Silicon Valley banking in general currently is not doing?
1: Yeah. I like to think of like a public tech bank as like really expanding the definition of of technology, or at least the way that we think about technology, to include a lot more hardware, materials, advances, and things that can really shift the whole kind of like framework for how we innovate. So one way in which this tech bank, I think, would reduce risk in the overall economy is it would just create a new standard for the kind of tech projects we want to take on. We no longer just say that what is going to return the highest amount of money in 10 years is going to be what's financed. We're going to say that like actually what has the like, most
0: potential impact is going to be finance. So you're saying a public tech bank could have a longer time horizon than what's currently the norm in tech banking.
1: Oh, yeah. Traditional tech banking and even traditional banking just overall, because like one of the issues for why we really struggled to get private banks to even consider something like the carbon output of the companies that are underwriting is because they refuse to look at risk on like a 50-year time horizon. They also refuse to look at like investment on a 50-year time horizon. And banks that are backed by the government the government again i feel like people think of it as this very fragile institution that because it's you know has a deficit it's just one day it's going to like crumble or something which is like a narrative that gets like put around in a lot of propaganda and isn't really supported by the fact that you and i walk around to like feeling very like comfortable and fine under our pretty stable government but the part of that stability part of the living in a, this democracy is that like it can be the federal government especially can be this eternal institution that can say it's going to set mandates for multiple decades rather than just one decade
0: and when you're looking 50 years out when you're looking multiple decades out the biggest risk factor for i'm going to say most businesses is climate change Could a public tech bank be the answer to addressing our climate change problems? I
1: think most experts would say it would be one of the answers for sure to addressing our problems. Certainly doesn't negate the need for financing from legislation passed by Congress, but I think that it would be something that would be able to direct a lot of the big private investors, especially like pension funds and that sort of thing, towards a future that's greener and actually begin to like coordinate as a thing, an entity, a bank that would be able to move at the speed of the market, but have the backing of the government.
0: Right. So a public tech bank could be a way that the U.S. government shifts Silicon Valley's priorities from let's say, apps to, let's say, climate change. Exactly. Think less about
1: how you're going to find your next dog walker and more about how you're going to, like, upgrade
0: an entire country's infrastructure and decrease an entire world's carbon output. I would like to thank Rover for watching my dog right now as I am (laughs) doing this interview. So we can't totally throw the app economy out, but... Totally. It can hang out. This will be private funding for that. Right. We can also have a public option to make sure there is still uh, an earth for all of our pets to walk around on. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Biden's stimulus initiative, the Inflation Reduction Act, actually had an allotment for a green bank of sorts. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. It's something that's like modeled after similar banks in Connecticut, New York, California. It's going to go and help municipalities, nonprofits, to be able to get things out like rooftop solar, solar storage, and that sort of thing. It's something that the U.S. is familiar with because of what's existed at the state level. It's just going to be the first time that
0: at the federal level we have a green bank. So rising interest rates kind of pulled the rug out from under Silicon Valley Bank, but also its clientele. How would this proposal help If and when we return to a low interest rate environment.
1: Private banks can be incredibly sensitive to interest rate moves unless they have a ton of deposits. Like the largest six banks in the U.S. are fairly resilient to interest rates. And a public option would also be really resilient to interest rates because We can say that for this public option, a certain number of state or national entities have to hold deposits there. So it's like super easy for this bank to increase deposits. It doesn't have to increase deposits like Silicon Valley Bank did by um, offering all these goodies on top for entrepreneurs and their startups. The U.S. government can run a pretty massive deficit and be just fine. The federal government can have limitless resources. right? And it would allow the largest investors in the United States, which are the pension funds, the largest kind of like funds in the United States to put their money in things that are going to have some sort of backing from the U.S. government.
0: So I'm painfully aware that we're hearing this proposal from a business reporter, not from a venture capitalist or a startup CEO. I'm wondering how you think stakeholders in the industry would react to your proposal? I think that most venture
1: capitalists and startup executives have this view of Silicon Valley currently, that they are disruptors, uh, they're kind of these financial cowboys of the financial wild west and they are breaking up all the old ways of doing things. And so I think the idea that a public option would need to be added would be seen as bureaucratic, perhaps even socialist or Marxist or whatnot, on behalf of this group of people that tends to lean very libertarian and tends to have a very, very high view of the impact they have on the world. The amount of times in which you see on Twitter, Scott, A VC say, well, you should be grateful because you have iPhones because of us is, I mean, if I had a dollar for that every time it happened, I'd be a millionaire.
0: You could start your own tech bank.
1: (laughs) It's just a common refrain, like this idea that Silicon Valley pulled itself up by its bootstraps, which just isn't true. A large part of the reason why this place exists is because of the U.S. government.
0: But also what's been made possible by the U.S. government is a low interest rate environment. This is also true. I mean, for
1: reasons that had to do with a lot of things outside of Silicon Valley, a lot of things with the housing market and banks and whatnot, we had to keep interest rates super low because Congress that we were dealing with didn't want to stoke the economy. And so the central bank had to. Use the one tool it had to do that, which is lowering interest rates. And sure, that creates periods where there is a lot of cheap capital, but that's another argument then for another public entity that can steer cheap capital in the right direction.
0: Yeah. For the tech industry, which is famously laissez faire and libertarian, they've gotten by for decades with low interest rates. And the second that the Federal Reserve raised interest rates, they were in a little bit of trouble, not only negatively affecting Wall Street and the stock market, but also we've seen in banking. One of the main banks in tech couldn't stand up in a high interest rate environment.
1: Yeah, and honestly, I empathize, Scott. Like, I myself have not been in a high interest rate environment before, and I realized how long, like, the last time we were in a high interest rate environment... A truly high interest rate environment was like in the 70s and 80s. I wasn't born yet. So like you have a lot of companies that have a lot of younger people at it that have never had to try to navigate something like this before. And so how are they supposed to see what's going to happen?
0: Yeah. For all of our listeners at home, Nate is 15 years old. He's just a, <laughs> a wonderkind reporter. <laughs> what's interesting is that when Silicon Valley Bank failed... There were a lot of venture capitalists that were asking the government to either bail it out or bail out depositors, which ultimately they did. So there seems to be a crack in the uh, ethos of libertarianism that has pervaded Silicon Valley for a long time. Yeah. Maybe that's an opening for your proposal. There's a
1: saying, everyone is a Keynesian in foxholes. When stuff hits the fan, that's when you're ready to accept money from the government.
0: Everyone's a free market capitalist until they're in a a bind.
1: The Keynesian school of thinking comes from um, John Maynard Keynes, who was an English economist, um, very liberal, and and emphasized the government's ability to increase our productive capacity, which is a fancy way of saying to make us more
0: able to build more stuff. Right. Everyone's on a hot streak until they're back at the ATM trying to get more money to go back to the table. (laughs) Exactly. So how could a public tech bank change the venture capital ecosystem? Could a proposal like this actually put private actors out of business? I mean, Saleya Morova, who's a legal
1: expert, has this proposal for a national investment authority, which would include both a public infrastructure bank that would be basically like a public tech bank. And then the other half of it would be a public venture capital arm. And I would think of it as like a Public BlackRock, basically, and that in her proposal it would be charged to not compete with private actors. But even if it were investing in things that private actors aren't investing in, you have this standard for like how capital should be invested, and you have this bigger kind of like eight hundred pound gorilla. Well, you kind of like have this change in the ecosystem that happens as a result. So I think you could see. Uh, a lot more venture capitalists begin to think more deeply about taking on a longer time horizon, maybe Mm -hmm. in their investments, and also thinking more deeply about where do they actually want to put their capital and actually seeing like some sort of like financial stability along with risk taking being like a value in
0: Silicon Valley. Nate, I think you're going to get a little bit of opposition from Silicon Valley types on Twitter. What's going to be your retort when they tweet angry stuff at you?
1: My retort will be Do you want another internet moment? Because, like, this
0: is what's going to get us there.
1: And if you want to build a lot more cool apps in whatever the
0: next version of the internet is, back this up. Right. The internet or the web might not have survived a 10 year VC cycle. 100%. I will retweet that. <laughs> I will go to yeah. war with you, Nate. Yeah. Nate DiCamillo covers economics for Quartz. The Quartz Obsession is produced by Rachel Ward, with additional support from executive editor Susan Hausen and platform strategist Shivank Taksali. Our theme music is by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Segura. This episode was recorded by Eric Wojohn at Solid Sound in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and at GeoMedia's headquarters in New York City. If you like what you heard, leave us a review. We love hearing what you think about the show. Tell your friends about us, then head to qz.com obsession to sign up for Quartz's weekly obsession email and browse hundreds of stories about everything from fan fiction to radon to eGOTS. Quartz is a guide to the new global economy for people in business who are excited about change. We hope you'll join us next time when we dig into algorithmic hiring.
1: They're saying that we can move
0: our decision-making over to computers and basically create a future where our human preferences, our human errors, our human bias can be taken out of the equation.
1: And that somehow computers can be beyond bias.
0: I'm Scott Nover. Thanks for listening.
1: I had just a um, bagel from the bodega right next to my apartment.
0: That is New York privilege. I know, but I also
1: got a coffee, too, a large coffee that was $2 as well. But they always charge me four sixteen 16 because of the interchange fee. I don't know if they're technically supposed to do that. I can't remember what New York state law is. I know they can't. Stop me from buying something because of the interchange fee. That was my last bodega in East Harlem. Like, you should be like, there's a $10 minimum. And I'd be like, wrong. Not according to the New York Department of Financial Services. So I'm going to pay for this now.